I got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello, and welcome to episode 171 of Additional History Headlines You Probably Missed. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark, and I've got a great episode for you today. I'll tell you a little bit about our feature day, and then I'll tell you what other stories we're making headlines at the same time. Today's episode date is March 25th, 1911. I doubt most of you will know what the episode is about, just based on that date. And in fact, I doubt most of you will know what it is even after I read you the big, giant headline and tell you the subject. It's not something that's commonly talked about. And I don't think it's even taught in most school history classes. But it's historically significant for the outcomes of the event. So, again, today's date is March 25th, 1911, and I'm taking our headline from the Seattle Star out of Washington State. This headline says, 100 people plunge to an awful death. Friends, this is the story of the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. Do you recognize it? Have you heard of it before? Don't worry, I'll tell you all about it. First of all, this infamous fire started at a factory where they made shirtwaists. Some of you might be wondering what a shirtwaist is. Basically, it's a shirt. And if you can picture the blouses women wore in the early years of the 20th century, tucked into long straight skirts, you might be picturing a shirtwaist. They usually had long tails that could be tucked in. Anyway, on March 25th, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory was filled with workers. It was located in the top few floors of a really tall building, at least 10 stories high, and it was in Manhattan, New York. When fire suddenly broke out on the seventh floor of the building, workers on the floor above the fire rushed to the staircases to try to exit the building, but flames from the fire below blocked their way. At the time the first article was printed, which, if you remember, was in Seattle, The fire was still active, and people were still trapped inside the building. That meant, of course, that the details weren't accurate or complete. What they didn't know was that pretty much every fire unit in New York City had been called to the scene, and they were doing everything they could to put out the fire, but they weren't having much success. With a scene like that, the fire was drawing a lot of attention, and since it was near Washington Square, where there were and are a bunch of old mansions, people were climbing onto the roofs to watch the fire's progress. Other people were climbing into the trees surrounding the square to get a better look. From there, people could see some of the victims, choosing what they probably thought to be the lesser of two evils, as they jumped out of the eighth-story windows. To everyone's horror, each of those people died immediately upon hitting the sidewalk below. It was said that many other faces could be seen looking out of the smoke and flame-filled upper windows, even as their co-workers plunged to their deaths. Before the night was over, dozens of people would choose to jump to their deaths as spectators watched in horror, unable to do anything to help. One reporter on the scene said he watched and counted 62 people choose to end their lives in that way. And speaking of spectators, on the ground... Thousands of people were rushing to the building, 
and getting in the way of the firefighters' efforts as they searched desperately to see if their loved ones made it out of the building or were still trapped inside. The massive crowd was so unruly that cops had to club some of them to hold them back. I've talked about other factory fires on this podcast before, but this one is truly horrific when you hear it from the mouths of those who survived. One girl, Irene Zabor, said, quote, I was engaged on the seventh floor in the cutting department when flames burst out near one of the machines. All of us ran toward the elevator, but when the car failed to come up, we rushed toward the stairways. Dora Miller attempted to open a heavy door, but before she could swing it, more than a hundred girls packed in behind her and jammed it shut. Dora broke the glass with her fist and started to climb through. Then there was a rush of others to do the same. I scrambled through with the crowd. All of us were badly cut by the glass on the door. So far as I know, only 20 girls got through before the jam prevented further escape. Meantime, Tommy, the elevator boy, had taken the car to the 8th floor and filled it. As it went by us, I could see that the car was too jammed full for any others to enter. Tommy made several trips until the heat on the 7th floor made it impossible to open the door of the cage. As soon as escape by the stairways and elevator was cut off, there was a rush of the girls to the windows, and leaps to the sidewalk began. Well, as you can probably imagine, the full extent of the damage and lives lost in the fire wasn't known that first day, and it took a few days for the whole story to come out. More information about the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory working conditions was discovered too. It turns out that the factory was a sweatshop. Most of the employees there were young teenage girls. Most of them were immigrants who spoke very little English and just needed a way to survive. Employees were expected to work 12 hours a day every single day of the week. They were only paid $15 a week. Remember how Irene, the girl whose story I just read, said that one girl tried to open a door but couldn't get it open before the crowd pushed against it? Well, that's because there were two doors that opened to stairways, and both of them opened inward. But one of those stairways was always locked because they didn't want anyone stealing product and sneaking out down the staircase. There was a fire escape, but apparently it was so narrow and hard to use, and they had so many workers packed into the building, it would have taken hours for everyone to evacuate the building using it. Especially since the fire escape only reached to the seventh floor, and there were ten floors of the building. And the owners of the factory didn't want to put in sprinkler systems because they'd been known to purposely set fire to their own buildings in the past in order to collect insurance money. A sprinkler system would only stop it from happening if they decided to collect insurance money again. The Triangle fire was not set on purpose, though, just so you know. The Triangle Shirtwaist Factory employed 750 people. I'm not sure how many were actually packed into the building on that day, but when all was said and done with the fire, there were 146 deaths, and most of them were women and girls. There were many eyewitness accounts printed in newspapers in those first few days after the fire, but I don't want to get into them because, believe it or not, the stuff I've already shared is extremely mild compared to those accounts. They are horrible to read. Now, you're probably wondering why I chose to feature this day, even though not that many people know about it. Well, it's because of what happened in the aftermath of the Triangle Fire. 
People all over the country, and even the world, were so horrified by what had happened that protests broke out. And people finally started to wake up to the poor working conditions and lack of enforcement on safety measures. New laws were passed for workplace safety, and many improvements were made in that area. The building still stands near Washington Square, and it's considered a National Historic Landmark. There is so much more I could say on this story, and I'm very much aware that I barely scratched the surface, but I think I've said enough to give you a taste of what happened that day, and what the world was like at that time. So, I'm going to open some more newspapers, and see what else was being reported on such a tragic day. It was really hard to choose the additional history stories today because there were so many that would have been interesting to tell. Before I get into the first story that I did choose, I'm going to briefly tell you about a couple of honorable mentions that I passed up. First of all, the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire wasn't the only major fire written about in newspapers that day, even though it's the one that's most remembered and still talked about on occasion. Down in Fayette, Alabama, A fire started in one of the town's drugstores, and it soon spread to the building next door, and so on down the line, until the entire business district was on fire. Everyone in town rushed out to help put the fire out. They formed a bucket brigade, and did their very best to put it out, but it was a losing battle. And when they saw that they weren't going to be successful, citizens ran into the buildings that weren't yet fully engulfed, and started helping the storekeepers get out as many supplies and products as they could, But when all was said and done, more than 50 businesses were complete losses. At least four homes had burned, and the town's courthouse was gone. Another story that deserves an honorable mention is that of the Dixie Flyer train wreck. I've shared multiple train wreck stories on this podcast, and this one is definitely interesting and absolutely terrifying. The Dixie Flyer train was traveling from Chicago, Illinois to Jacksonville, Florida, when an axle suddenly broke on one of the front train cars. Unfortunately, it was right as the train was crossing over a trestle bridge that spanned a river in Georgia. The broken axle caused the train to derail, and multiple cars plunged down into the river and were hidden under 10 feet of water. There was no warning that the crash was imminent, and many of those poor passengers were asleep in their berths when the cars plunged into the water. Many were hurt, and 10 people drowned or died from their injuries before they could be rescued. Talk about a rude awakening. Now, the real first additional history story of the day is a story of exoneration and indemnification. I'm taking this article from the Lancaster Intelligencer out of Lancaster, Pennsylvania. This headline says, Carnegie glad to help Toth, innocent victim. This is another story that starts well before our famous day, but it was still making huge headlines, or in this case, making big headlines again at the same time as the fire in New York. Our story began in Braddock, Pennsylvania, which is near Pittsburgh, 20 years earlier, on New Year's Day of 1891. Braddock was a booming town at the time. There was a huge steel mill there, owned by none other than Andrew Carnegie himself. And the general manager was Charles M. Schwab. 
The mill employed many, many people. A lot of the workers at the mill were immigrants to the United States. And as we know from history, different immigrant groups didn't always get along. In this case, there were a lot of workers of Irish descent at the mill, and a lot of workers of Hungarian descent. As the new year of 1891 rolled around, workers at the steel mill were on strike. I won't go into great detail on that part, but you should know that hundreds of employees were affected by this strike. Well, around noon that day, everything went from a tense situation to a very chaotic situation. The Hungarian workers noticed that the giant furnaces at the mill were being stoked, and the mill wasn't shut down like it was supposed to be. Somebody was breaking the strike. So, the Hungarian workers armed themselves with all the weapons they could find, which mostly consisted of things like shovels and axe handles and things they could quickly improvise with, and then they marched themselves down to the mill and began to riot and fight with those who were working on the furnaces, mostly the English-speaking workers. It was an absolutely crazy situation as coal workers beat each other up seemingly without any remorse or care. The sheriff didn't have enough men to stop the situation, so he quickly deputized as many as 200 men to help with the riot. I don't want to give all the details of the riot because that's not really what this additional history story is about, but know that when all was said and done, the riot left dozens of men severely injured, and some of them were barely clinging to life and not expected to survive. One man, Michael Quinn, was some sort of leader at the mill, a boss if you will. The day after the riot, the Pittsburgh Post printed this statement from him. Quote, we were at work making repairs on the furnaces and did not suspect that any outbreak would be made by the strikers. Suddenly they came at us when we were not expecting it. I was separated from the other men, and four big Hungarians came at me with clubs and shovels. One of them knocked me down with a shovel, and they all jumped on me and beat me. I fought them as well as I could, but they were too many for me. Well, Michael Quinn, the man whose quote I just read, didn't survive the ordeal, and he ended up passing away from his injuries a few days after the riot. Suddenly, the situation had changed, and the authorities were looking for people to punish for murder. An eyewitness came forward and announced that he had seen a Hungarian man by the name of Andrew Toth beat Michael Quinn and even deliver the fatal blow. Other eyewitnesses named two other men, Michael Sabel and George Rusnak as being part of the beating that led to the death. Now, Andrew Toth had only been in the United States for about five years at this point, and it had never been his intention to make the U.S. his permanent home. He'd only moved here long enough to save up enough money to go back to Hungary and buy a home. When the police came knocking at his door to arrest him for the murder, he was shocked, and he insisted he had nothing to do with the death of Michael Quinn. Michael Sebel and George Resnick were also arrested. A few months later, in April of 1891, the three men went to trial for their parts in the death. During the trial, there were three eyewitnesses. One of them pointed out Andrew Toth as one of the murderers and named a certain place at the mill where the beating occurred. However, the other two eyewitnesses said they didn't recognize Andrew Toth and they named a different place that the beating had occurred a place that made a lot more sense, since that was where Michael Quinn was found. 
the two locations were 500 feet apart. There was no way all three witnesses were telling the truth, because from where each of them claimed to be, they couldn't have seen what was going on in the other area. And, are you ready for this? The one man that claimed he saw Andrew Toth beat Michael Quinn originally named a Steve Toth as the perpetrator. But since Steve Toth couldn't be found, Andrew Toth was arrested instead. The men were not related, but just happened to have the same last name. Despite the lack of evidence in the case, all three of the men were found guilty and sentenced to hang to death for the murder of Michael Quinn. The truly sad part is that, remember how Andrew Toth was only going to be in the United States long enough to save money to buy a house for his wife back in Hungary? Well, he was just a few weeks away from meeting his goal and heading back to his home country to be with his wife. Now, he was going to die for a crime that he claimed he didn't commit. The case was, of course, immediately appealed, but just a few months later, in June, the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania decided to uphold the death sentences. When Andrew Carnegie and Charles Schwab heard the results of the trial, they were both disturbed by the outcome. To them, it seemed that a couple of men were taking the fall for the action of many. And they too believed that the evidence seemed flimsy at best. Those men appealed to the governor of Pennsylvania to have all three of the men's sentences changed. And with as much influence as they probably had in the state, it didn't take very long. In February of the next year, the governor commuted their sentences to life in prison instead. They would no longer hang for the crime. But Andrew Toth still insisted he was innocent, and he hoped that one day, somehow, he would be freed from prison. Well, fast forward a couple of years to 1894, and suddenly a man came forward and announced that his friend had actually been one of the men to kill Michael Quinn, not the ones locked up. Police looked into the matter and decided that, yeah, the newly accused man did look an awful lot like George Rudznak. Could it be that the eyewitness got them mixed up? The police believed that was indeed the case. So, in March of 1895, Michael Sebel was the first to be pardoned and was released from prison. However, he had been sick for most of the time behind bars and only saw freedom for a couple of weeks before he died. Pretty much, they just let him out to die at home. Then in 1897, George Rusnak was pardoned and allowed to be free. But despite being an absolute model prisoner and a devout Christian who was known in the prison as Little Praying Andy, Andrew Toth didn't receive a pardon, and he would continue to sit in his cell for 20 years. Then, in December of 1910, just a few months before the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, Andrew Toth's circumstances suddenly took a major turn. Remember how the one eyewitness who claimed Andrew Toth was the killer had originally told police it was a man named Steve Toth? Well, it turns out that Steve Toth had fled the United States right after the riot and returned to Hungary. Since he wasn't around, and since there was someone else to put the blame on, he was basically forgotten. All those years that Andrew Toth was rotting away in prison, Steve Toth was alive and well in Hungary. And then he got typhoid fever. And he was on his deathbed. And suddenly he had a change of heart. He wrote a letter stating that the jury had been wrong 20 years earlier. 
and it was him, not Andrew, who killed Michael Quinn. The Pennsylvania Board of Pardons agreed to read the letter, and finally, for the first time, decided that maybe they should look at the evidence in the case. They did, and they decided that Andrew Toth had been telling the truth for all those years, and he was finally pardoned in March of 1911. As a side note, Steve Toth suddenly had a miraculous recovery, and there was talk of finally putting him on trial. But before that could happen, his health changed again, and he passed away. Okay, back to Andrew Toth. I can't imagine how excited he was to finally be free. All those years of praying in prison had finally paid off, and he was going to go back to Hungary to see his wife. Now remember, he had been without her in the U.S. for five years while he worked at the steel mill, plus the 20 years he was locked up in prison. So, it had been 25 years since the couple had seen or talked to each other. But Andrew's wife was devoted to her husband, and she was eagerly waiting for his return. Newspapers reported that when Andrew was released, he would be taken away from the prison in an automobile, something he had never even seen because he had been locked up for so long. He was shocked by the skyscrapers he saw, too. He had entered the prison when he was 41 years old, a strong man in really good shape, but when he left, he was white-haired with a sunken face. Andrew had either two or four sons who were living not too far from the prison, but it's really unclear whether they had always lived there and if they were allowed to visit him or if they had come to the U.S. in later years or even just came when he was exonerated. It was very unclear, and I'm really not sure about that. Anyway, when Andrew was released, he thanked the warden for being so nice to him. And the warden even shed a tear or two and told him to go and be happy. Except, again, Andrew had been locked up for 20 years. He had no money to his name and no way of getting back to Hungary. At the time, there wasn't any sort of indemnification. Andrew Toth was just let out onto the streets with nothing to his name and no real apology for all the years he had suffered. Again, when Andrew Carnegie got word of what had happened, he decided to set Andrew Toth up with a $40 a month pension. I know that doesn't sound like a lot, but it was just over $1,000 in today's money. Andrew Toth returned to Hungary, and a debate began in the United States about how and if prisoners were found innocent after surviving time behind bars should be compensated. It would take many years still, but Andrew Toth's case was one of the leading factors that eventually led to states putting laws into place that would help innocent victims when they were released. But, how do you truly compensate someone for taking away 20 years of their life? For my second additional history story of the day, I'm taking a headline from the St. Joseph News Press out of St. Joseph, Missouri. The headline says, Husband is taken at grave of wife. In this story, the husband in question is a man named James M. Gregory. Some sources refer to him as Matt Gregory, and I'm guessing that's what the M initial stands for in his name. So that's what we'll call him. Matt Gregory was married to a woman named Rena, whom he supposedly loved, and they lived in Frederick, Oklahoma. Things seemed to be going well for the couple. Then, one day, a 
few days before the big factory fire, that is today's main subject, Rena suddenly got sick. Max sent for doctors, and two of them, Dr. Roberts and Mitchell, hurried to the Gregory home in their car. When they arrived, they found Rena having convulsions. They did what they could to save her, but it was no use, and the poor woman passed away. The official cause of death on her death certificate was listed as heart failure. Mac was a grieving husband, but he did what needed to be done. He planned the funeral, made plans to have his wife's body embalmed, and then stood by his wife's grave as the first clods of dirt were tossed down upon her coffin. But some people believed that being a grieving husband was all an act, including Mac's brothers-in-law. And before Rena was buried, a doctor examined her body. Well, the results of those tests came back just in time to stop the burial, and the police suddenly showed up in the cemetery at Rena's gravesite and arrested Mac right there on the spot in front of everyone attending the funeral for the murder of his wife. The doctors claimed that they had found strychnine in her system. Now, people might not have questioned the woman's sudden death if it weren't for one kind of big thing. Rena Gregory was only 23 years old when she died. That's pretty young to die of heart failure, and people were convinced there had to be another explanation. Well, within just a few days, the articles about Mac went from small little blurbs to big, bold headlined articles accusing him of all kinds of things. They wrote that the death of Rena Gregory was the most brutal crime ever committed in the county. Of course, everyone wanted to talk to or see the evil man, and those who went to the jail where Mac was being held said that he was a physical wreck and just sat on the bunk in his cell all day long and sobbed. When people tried to ask him questions, he'd mumble incoherently and didn't seem to know exactly what was going on. Those who saw him didn't believe he'd even taken his shoes off or his hat off since he'd been placed in his cell. The jailer, who had seen a lot of locked-up people in his lifetime, said Mac was the most dejected mortal he'd ever seen in his entire life. And apparently, he had so much mucus coming out of his head, probably from all the crying, that it made him stink, and no other prisoner would tolerate being in a cell with him. Mac's father wanted to go to his son and lend aid, but when his mother got the news that her son had been arrested, she fainted and was pretty much unconscious for 24 hours. So his father couldn't leave her side and had to send Mac's brother instead. Well, Rena's brothers-in-law, or possibly her actual brothers, didn't like the grieving husband act that they claimed Mac was putting on, and they said that he killed Rena in order to collect on a $1,000 life insurance policy he had on her. They also claimed that the year before, he'd gotten a girl in the nearby town of Navajo in trouble. And I can only guess at what that means, but maybe it could be that he'd gotten someone other than his wife pregnant. The brothers-in-law believed Mac killed Rena so he could have money and go to Navajo to be with the other woman or girl. Now, remember how I mentioned that Mac had had Rena embalmed? Well, apparently that wasn't always done back in the early 1900s especially if the body was going to be buried sooner rather than later. 
The brothers-in-law claimed that the only reason Mac had Rena embalmed was to hide the strychnine poison he'd gotten into her somehow. According to Mac's father, Mac and Rena had been married for seven years, and they had always gotten along great, until that incident in the town of Navajo the year before. When Mac was coherent enough to speak, he claimed that Rena had health problems, and during her last bout of sickness, insisted that she wanted to die. If she was poisoned by strychnine, Mac believed she did it to herself. He believed his wife committed suicide. Well, the authorities took Rena's body and decided they were going to cut her open and examine her stomach to see if they could prove or disprove anything that way. Meanwhile, Mac was so well-liked in the community that he was easily able to come up with the bail money and soon found himself out of jail and back at home, waiting for his trial to start. It was supposed to just be a week or two, but the alleged murder happened in March of 1911 and the trial didn't start until October. Mac never tried to run, and he was ready to have his day in court when the time finally came. And when it got underway, the entire transcript of the trial was published in the newspapers. We're talking many, many columns and pages of trial transcript. I tried to read it all, but I'll admit that I ended up skimming a lot of it. Rena's parents testified that someone came to their home, sent by Mac, to tell them that Rena was dying and they needed to hurry. When they arrived, Mac was sitting on the porch with his head in his hands, while Rena was still convulsing inside. They asked Mac if he'd given her any medicine, as prescribed by the doctor, and he said he hadn't, so they had to go in and administer it to her. Another witness, a neighbor of the Gregory's, said that Mac had come over to their house to borrow a bottle of strychnine, just days before Rena died. However, Mac insisted that he had given the medicine to Rena twice, and that he had told his father-in-law that exact thing while standing at her bedside. Basically, from what I read, the entire trial was a lot of back and forth and he said, she said, between Rena's family and good friends and Mac's family and friends. But the majority of the trial seemed to be interviews with the doctors about what exactly they'd given to her and when they'd given it to her. And eventually it came out that there could have been trace amounts of strychnine in the medicine she was taking, and that the amount they found in Rena's stomach after they exhumed her body probably wasn't enough to kill her. Well, when all was said and done, and the closing arguments given, it ended up being the longest trial in the county up to that point. The jury left the courtroom to deliberate, but it only took them 15 minutes to come back with a unanimous decision. A decision that, according to at least one article, was no surprise to anyone who actually listened to the evidence presented at the trial. James Mac Gregory was acquitted and set free. For today's third and final additional history story of the day, I'm taking an article from the Shreveport Times out of Louisiana. The headline says, Husband says he is coming. Yeah, the headline doesn't really give away the subject matter, but that's okay because I'm going to tell you all about it. 
I've told similar stories to this in the past, and they always surprise me. This is another murder story. A few days before the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, a woman showed up at the office of the Vicksburg, Shreveport, and Pacific Railroad. It was about 9 o'clock in the morning, and the woman went to the office window and asked if she could please see C.G. Cornegay. Cornegay was a 35-year-old railroad rate clerk. When he heard that there was someone there to see him, he got up from his desk, approached the window, and the woman lifted a gun and shot Cornegay five times before anyone could even register what was happening. He fell to the ground, dying almost immediately. Then, the woman turned the gun on herself. Except that time, when she pulled the trigger, the gun failed to fire. The woman's plan for a murder-suicide had just failed. The police were called, and the woman was arrested. She was Mrs. Leota Haney, a married woman who had formerly lived in Greenville, Mississippi. Mrs. Haney had somehow met C.G. Cornegay and began to have an affair with him. The woman was so smitten that she left her husband and followed Cornegay to Shreveport, Louisiana to start a new life with him. But a man who would have an affair with a married woman isn't always the most trustworthy person, and when the couple got to Shreveport, Leo Haney discovered that Cornegay was already married to someone else. Not only that, but he had five or six children at home. Leota didn't know what to do. She figured her life was over, so she was going to kill herself, and she was going to take Cornegay with her. Now, I found it interesting that the same article from which I pulled all of that information I just told you also talked about what a wonderful man Cornegay was, and how he had such a lovely wife and came from such an esteemed family that was of the old members of town and well-respected. Yes, he shouldn't have been killed, but it didn't seem to bother anyone that he had had an affair with a married woman. At least not in the beginning. Once a few days had passed, people started thinking about it and realizing that maybe he wasn't as great as everyone had believed him to be. Cornegay was described as six foot one inch, well-proportioned, with a splendid physique. And again, as days passed, more details came out about the affair. Apparently, Leota and Cornegay had been seeing each other for about a year and living together for four months before the shooting. They met when Leota was still living with her husband. But when he found out about the affair, he whipped his wife and beat her with a shoe and then either kicked her out of the house or she fled. I'm not positive on that part. But I did find out that Leota had a couple of kids at home too, and she was willing to throw away her relationship with them to be with Cornegay. And it had been a long time since Cornegay had been living with his own wife and kids. The perfect husband the original articles painted wasn't so perfect after all. Although I will say that even though he didn't live with his real wife and kids, I think he did send money home occasionally. Leota soon realized that her time with Cornegay wasn't going to be as blissful as she hoped. They quarreled and fought all the time, and it became even worse when she found out that he had abandoned a wife and kids. She couldn't take it anymore, and she bought a gun. So, this brings us to the article whose headline I read you earlier. Husband says he is coming. 
Its meaning makes a lot more sense now that you know what happened in the couple of days leading up to March 25, 1911. Leo de Haney's real husband, the one who had beat her with a shoe when he found out about the affair, sent a message telling her not to worry about what she'd done and that he was on his way to help her and would be there in a day or two. He said that even though she was in trouble, he wouldn't desert her. Leota insisted that if she was set free, she would return to her husband and be a dutiful wife and mother. Leota Haney's trial began barely more than a month after the shooting. It was the first time a white woman had been on trial for something like that in a very long time. Well, on May 13, 1911, the verdict in this sensational trial was read. It had taken the jury 45 minutes of deliberation to come to their verdict. Leota Haney was acquitted and deemed emotionally insane, at least at the time of the shooting. It was believed that she would indeed be set free and allowed to return home to her normal life, the life she led before she met C.J. Cornegay. She would not be punished. For today's advertisement, I found the perfect thing in the Albany Herald Democrat out of Albany, Oregon. At least it's perfect for the time period. The Edwardian era had just barely ended, and many women still regularly wore corsets to keep a nice trim figure. The ad is from the W.B. Stevens and Company, and it was advertising that a Mrs. L.A. Belden was going to come for three days during the next week to give a Royal Worcester corset demonstration. The ad said that if any ladies had questions about their corsets, or trouble with their corsets, to come in and talk to her. And even if you didn't actually plan on buying anything, you could still come. That is one fashion trend I'm very glad I don't need to follow these days. Friends, thanks again for joining me for today's episode, even though the subject matter wasn't the happiest. Join me again this coming Thursday, where I'll have a mini-episode for you that talks about another tragedy you might not know about. Then, on Monday, come back for a new, full-size episode where I'll tell you about a matter of presidential proportions. Talk to you later.